This is Laree Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. Cheryl Huber, the Vice President of Food and Benefits Access at United Way. Cheryl Huber, it is such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. I'm just really, really thrilled to be here talking about this important topic. So thank you for highlighting it today. Absolutely. Uh, the joy is ours, or really the, the concern is ours, because one of the things that I think we should have a heightened level of sensitivity to, particularly at this time of year, is the fact that not all of us are able to approach our meals. Uh, not all of us are able to approach our nutrition from the same vantage point. Uh, give us a sense for people who may not be familiar. Uh, what are SNAP benefits? How have uh, Who relies on them? And what are some of the changes that we've seen as it pertains to the access to these benefits, which really for a lot of people can mean the difference between a, a full meal or none at all. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. I think um, today about 1.8 million New York City residents are receiving SNAP. Uh, it's wow. a high number, you know, higher than it's been in years, um, you know, fallout from the pandemic. And of course, all of those pandemic related programs have now evaporated. So we saw child tax credits, we saw boosted unemployment benefits, we saw a mor moratorium on evictions. Um, all of these different programs during COVID really kept people from falling into poverty. And as those programs kind of fell away and the federal, you know, the government sort of brushed their hands and, and moved away from those programs, we've seen, um, you know, child poverty increase dramatically last year. Mm -hmm. um, we've seen you know, food prices have gone up, the cost of living has increased. And so more and more people really are thankfully tapping into these SNAP benefits because it's an incredible resource. Um, and part of what we do at United Way of New York City is let people know that that resource is out there and help them apply, help them enroll, make sure that they're getting the benefits that they deserve. Hmm. Now, I would imagine the, the data that you're sharing is specific to New York. I would imagine that this is something that we see replicated in states across the country, or is New York bear, uh, faring better or worse than peer states? You know, in a lot of ways, uh, New York sometimes fares better because um, our government, you know, on the city and state level tend to be you know, uh, not only supporting SNAP enrollment, but also providing other food benefits and programs to to assist people. You know, there was so much during COVID that the city government did to keep people fed during the, the pandemic. And, um, you know, so in some ways we're lucky, but on the other hand, our cost of living is, you know, as everyone listening knows, it's just extraordinarily high. Um, United Way and the Fund for the City of New York recently released the True Cost of Living report that looked at, you know, what does it actually take to pay for life in New York between rent and transportation, childcare, groceries. Um, and we found that 50% of New Yorkers today cannot actually afford the cost of living. Mm. So, you know, and, and it's working people. These are, it's the shocking thing too. I think when you talk to, you know, we work at United Way with about 500 food pantries and soup kitchens across the city. And when you speak to them about how the work has changed and things that they've seen over the years, the, the resounding response is that the people waiting on the line at food pantries are 
working families. This is not a problem that's limited to, you know, folks that don't have homes or, you know, um, or just aren't even working. These are, these are people that have jobs. It's just, they're not earning enough. Right. So there's, that's such a multifaceted challenge. Mm. I remember during the pandemic, seeing people in lines and of cars, uh, we saw it in, in our city, we saw it all across the nation, but these were people who were waiting in food lines. And I will be honest, very honest with you when the pandemic struck, it was right as the census was kicking off. And, uh, we realized, cause we typically, when we do our, our census work at the center for law and social justice at Meg Rivers college, we typically would go to high traffic areas and those might be barbershops, hair salons, um, daycare centers centers, grocery stores. During the pandemic, it was food pantry lines and vaccine lines. Or actually the vaccine lines hadn't even started yet. It was testing lines uh, to mm -hmm. see if you had the if you had the rona. And then there were the food pantry lines and we could literally tie our outreach to if we if you're trying to do outreach at places where a lot of people were gathered during the pandemic, those were the places where people were. And I remember seeing these rows and rows of cars in states not like New York or in places not like New York City where a lot of us are pedestrian driven. But you had places in, in Texas, in Oklahoma, in Iowa, where people were in their cars in food lines for the first time ever. They, many of these folks had never even known that there were people who had to get access to food in this way. And that was a real shock for people. And talk with us about where the economy of, of that sort of need is now. I know that we're seeing... Um, massive amounts of, of of reliance on a lot of these benefits in a time where we have lost the, the child tax credit. Uh, well, I shouldn't say we lost it. Republicans voted against it. Thank you, Joe Manchin. You also helped in that effort. Kristen Cinema, you too. Uh, we saw eviction moratoriums come to a close, and, and we're now seeing uh, those rates picking up again. And unemployment insurance is no longer at the elevated levels in many jurisdictions that it was during the pandemic. So when it comes to the lived experiences of people who rely on these safety nets, Talk to us about the impact it has when the rules change or access opportunities change. And, and what does it mean in the lived experience of those families when they lost that child tax credit? How did that impact them? Yes, absolutely. I, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And I, what you're saying completely resonates with also what the data shows, um, because before COVID, so in 2019, there were about 24 million pantry visits. So food pantry, you know, this is of course repeat customers, but 24 million visits to food pantries and soup kitchens across the city. In 2023, it was 42 million. Whoa. So that's a 75% increase. And the peak was like 44 million. So we're not far from the very peak levels of COVID, you know, in sort of 2021 when those benefits evaporated and people really needed to, to rely on the pantries. Um, you know, programs like SNAP are so critical because they there is, it, you know, it's an entitlement program. So if you qualify, you are guaranteed to receive those benefits. The problem is that it's not broad enough. And one of the things that we're working on at United Way of New York City is looking ahead at the farm bill, which is going to, you know, it's already expired. We have sort of a continuing resolution that's keeping keeping it going. But in the next few months, we're going to need to pass a new farm bill on the federal level. And we're really pushing. Um, we've been meeting with our legislators to talk about the need not to just protect SNAP, but really to expand it. We want to mm -hmm. see 
more people able to access these benefits. You know, right now, too many people are subject to stringent work requirements. So they have to go keep appointments every week to prove that they're either working or looking for work. Um, you know, that includes college students who often are subject subjected to work requirements, even though they're in school. Wow. Um, immigrants who are here legally have to wait five years before they can enroll in SNAP. And so those are the kinds of limits that, you know, all we're doing is really increasing the problem and, and keeping people in poverty when we have a solution that actually, you know, SNAP works really well. You receive a benefit card. It's loaded, you know, it's just like a debit card. So when you go to that grocery store or the farmer's market, you swipe your card just like everybody else. Nobody knows, you know, that you're using um, benefits so that 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 stigma really has evaporated in many ways. Mm. Um, But, you know, we just we need to be sure that more people can can access those dollars. I will say as someone who had to to navigate the shame of having multicolored coupons in a coupon book. I don't know if y'all remember the old school days of food stamps when it was a coupon book and it was clearly not green. So everybody behind you could tell you were using food stamps. I much preferred this system of the debit card feature. Um, I think just for the shame function alone, it because there's a lot of shame uh, around a lot of these issues and a lot of these needs. And, and that's one of the things that I think is really important is that we, we lessen the stigma and we empower people to take access and to take advantage of the resources that they need. I, I want to talk a little bit about this true cost of living report. And full disclosure, um, I was one of the 11 commissioners who served on the New York City Racial Justice Commission. And this true cost of living was one of the three ballot proposals that we were able to get on the ballot that New Yorkers overwhelmingly voted for. And I think of the three proposals, this was the proposal that got the highest number of votes in, in, yeah. in favor of. In fact, the, the creation of the racial justice infrastructure that won by over two thirds. Uh, the the preamble statement and, and the statement of values in our city constitution that won with over two thirds. I think true cost of living. It might have been in like the eighty percent. I mean, it was huge. <laughs> how many people came out to support this? So y'all, again, this is why elections matter, right? This is not just me talking. We had a we had people come out to protest in twenty twenty after George Floyd is lynched on t on camera. We had the mayor, the then mayor Bill De Blasio, who responded uh, by doing a couple things like you know painting black lives matter on the streets which is eh, whatever um and you know juneteenth as a city holiday eh, again whatever the federal government stole the thunder there and you know and made it a federal holiday but putting together that racial justice commission i think will stand as as history tells it i think that will be that and and universal pre-k will be the two things that really um, are going to be crown jewels in that administration because these racial justice ballot proposals like the true cost of living are really giving us access to a pathway towards more equity. Can can we talk about the true cost of living for just a second? As I understand it, we have this belief in our country that if you are making, what is it, $30,000, your family of four, two adults and two children, you're making $30,000 a year, technically you're not considered poor. Do do I have that accurate? Is that correct, Vice President Huber? (laughs) That is just about right. You know, we rely on this outdated, incredibly outdated uh, what's called the official poverty measure. And that's what you're talking about, this federal, you know, federal designation of what it means to be, um, you know, living in poverty. It's based only on food costs and it's based on how people budgeted in the 1960s. So mm. at the time it was, it was, you know, in some ways revolutionary to say, like, let's talk about what poverty actually is. Let's draw a line. Let's, you know, 
make sure that people that are under that line are getting taken care of. But at this point, it has been decades and it is so, so far out of date. You know, these days we spend a third of our income on um, rent and mortgage, not on food, you know, so that has completely flipped. And we know in New York that housing is a huge, huge cost for people. Um, So what the true cost of living does is it looks at all of those costs, um, you know, including, and and it kind of, it varies based on, because, you know, if you have a preschooler or a teenager, your costs are very different. So it also Mm. looks at, you know, the cost of, of raising children and based on those ages, um, you know, are you paying for daycare every day or are you paying, you know, more in your grocery bill, which you might be if you have a high school student. Um, And so it really looks at those costs and it looks by borough as well. And so if you go to truecostofliving.org, you can, you can see that report and you can also put in your own information to kind of find out, are you within the true true cost of living? And I encourage mm-hmm. listeners to do that, to really understand what it takes to live in the city. You know, we, we all kind of pinch and stretch to make things work. Um, but, but, you know, many people don't have that ability even. So, yeah. Yeah. And I remember when uh, Jennifer Jones Austin, who's the president and CEO of the um, of, uh, FPWA, uh, when she breaks this down, she talks about, yeah, this is what our government says we should be able to live on that $30,000. And then when you look at the true cost of living in a city like New York, it's closer to $90,000. It's beyond $90,000 that you would actually need to have your basic needs covered. And, and so when you don't have a true cost of living, that gap that's created between what you're actually making and what it costs to live here. It's exorbitant. And then unfortunately, if you are not considered poor, meaning making below that $30,000 cutoff, I think it's like 29,000 and change. Uh, But if you're not considered poor, the higher you go up, once you pass $30,000, the amount of supports you can rely on decreases exponentially. So this this report is amazing, and I'm so grateful that this work is being done. And I, I appreciate that how it got started in New York City, but I'm of the opinion that this needs to be a federal understanding. We need to have a, this as a national conversation. Uh, I don't know if the United Way has taken a position on that. Is this something that you all are advocating for to be more nationalized in terms of how we look at what it actually cost to live in our various localities? Well, you know, I think as always, we hope that New York will, you know, set an example uh, for the country. But there are lots of states and cities actually around the country that are doing similar studies like this. We work with the University of Washington to to really examine and and pull apart this data and understand it. Um, And they've done this this kind of report for many, many um, municipalities and states around the country. And it's it's an incredible resource for those places because it it really does let you have more control over, you know, how you understand poverty where you are, because it is such a localized thing. You know, what, what's true here is, is not true, you know, anywhere else (laughs) really, but Mm. um, you know, but having that, that distinction of the local differences is, is so critical. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I want more of us to get conversant in this topic because yes. I, I believe that we are responsible for building this better world, for building this better community. And that means we have to understand what people are going through uh, when they're navigating uh, access to the social safety net. And until we have housing for all as a human right, food, water for all as a human right, we are going to have to grapple with these issues in meaningful ways. And I, I just want us as a society to care 
<laughs> want us right. as a society to care more. Now, when it comes to SNAP benefits in particular, you mentioned that college students have to demonstrate that they are, are meeting work requirements. I know that unemployment is low, but are we at the point yet where there are the, the people who are in most need of, of benefits like SNAP, those work requirements are the jobs that they are, are, are that are available to them. Is there a, a mismatch there? Is there a disconnect or are there positions that folks actually could, because we keep hearing about, you know, in, in New York State, we just passed the clean slate law. Shout out to Governor Kathy Hochul for signing that into law. Uh, and she talked about the fact that there are 400,000 jobs right now that need to be filled and that that formerly incarcerated incarcerated people will now be able to have access to. But are the jobs that we're talking about that someone who needs SNAP that they have to apply for, are those jobs a match for the skill sets that we're seeing from this group of folks? Do you have any insight there? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. And part of, I think, the concern and the reason why we see so many working people on the lines for pantries is that mismatch. It's Or rather, it's the quality of the jobs that they are able to access. So you know, if if you're working an hourly wage, no benefits, you know, companies are sort of notorious for keeping people below full-time hours so that they don't right. qualify for benefits, um, meaning healthcare and things like that. That's that's where we see the problem. And I think, you know, there's that ties back to so many different issues in our society. Mm-hmm. But I think the need for really quality jobs is a is a key component of all of this. Um, and when we talked, I know you asked about the um, the changes in SNAP that, you know, have recently come about. And a lot of that is related to work requirements. Um, there is a, a group that USDA calls ABODs, <laughs> Able-Bodied Adults Without Dependents. So that's really just, you know, adults who could theoretically be working, who don't have any children. Um, those adults are able to stay on SNAP only for three months and then they have to prove either they have to get a job or they have to prove that they are, you know, searching and and looking for work. Um, And they also can, can do volunteer work as a substitute for paid work. Of course, who has time to do volunteer work if you you're having trouble finding paid work, but those folks then are, are needing again to check in with uh, you know, the, the, the SNAP office to sort of, prove and have these really high administrative burdens to accessing their SNAP benefits. Um, this again is, is such a challenge for people who are already struggling, struggling either to find work, struggling to afford food, probably facing other challenges, um, you know, in their lives. And so these are some of the things that we want to, you know, that we, we, we need to stop moving toward in this direction. Um, mm. Thankfully in New York, we actually do have a waiver for this. So in New York, if you are anywhere in New York state um, until February, 2025, if you are an able-bodied adult without dependents, you don't need to prove, you know, that you're searching for work and all of that. And it's related to our unemployment rate actually. Wow. So, yeah. Wow. So much more that can be done, and I'm grateful that we have organizations like the United Way helping to push this conversation and and to really help ensure that we are 
we're fighting for the world we want to see, <laughs> right? And, and I hate to use the word fighting, but I, I feel like there has to be a recognition that we want better for ourselves, we want better for our society, and that's gonna require all of us getting engaged, getting involved, advocating on behalf of the least of these. And I know sometimes the least of these are not the, uh, they're not the most sympathetic of folks. If you, you're hearing able-bodied adult with no dependents, a lot of folks are thinking, well, what do they need help for? Well, sorry guys, but everybody is in a position of need when they don't have access uh, to the resources that they need in order to survive, whether you have children or not. There should be a safety net for you, if particularly if the jobs do not exist in a way, or if your education, for example, didn't prepare you for the jobs that exist. If you are realizing or, or living in communities that were cut off from the opportunities that would have prepared you for those things, we, we just, we have to do better as a society. We have to do better. So I'm really grateful uh, to the work you all are doing at, the, at United Way. Uh, this report, The True Cost of Living, I want us to tweet that out so that people can see. Uh, ask your local jurisdiction, ask your municipality, what is the true cost? What's the status of evaluating the true cost of living in our location, in our town? What is the state, in our city, in our county? What is the status of the true cost of living? Do we have access to that information? And if we don't, are we expecting people to be able to live and afford to live in, an, in a numerical fallacy, in a numerical impossibility? And if so, what are the policy implications of that and how can we do better. Uh, Cheryl Huber, Vice President of United Way, uh, Access to Benefits. Uh, thank you so much for being with us today and for breaking this down. How can people follow the work that the United Way is engaged in, support your work? Uh, what's the best way for them to engage with you all further? Yes, absolutely. We are at um, unitedwaynyc.org. Um, we are on Instagram and all of the social media at unitedwaynyc. Um, definitely please follow us. We have work also in the educational equity area, health equity, um, justice and opportunity. So we have a lot of community impact work that we do every day to really help to lift New Yorkers out of poverty and, and help them to lead economically mobile lives. Mm, I appreciate that. Thank you so much for being with us today. Have a happy holiday Thank you season. so much. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. 